This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. Thanks for listening to The Gist. If you want to check out an ad-free version and bonus content, go to subscribe.mikepesca.com. It is the best way to directly support our endeavors. It's Monday, March 27th, 2023 from Peachfish Productions. It's the gist. I'm Mike Pesca. And how you doing? Did you survive the weekend? I don't mean, did you survive? Like, did you have Texas to make the Final Four survive? I mean, the asteroid. The city-destroying asteroid I talked about on Friday. It whooshed by us 100,000 miles away from Earth. I kind of feel bad about that. I alerted you to the dangers of this city-destroying asteroid. Those dangers being we were told that it was dangerous even though it was eight times further away from any city that any other city can be, you know, the furthest away two spots on Earth can be, it's roughly 12,500 miles. But I do feel bad that I put that on your radar instead of this. Mr. Chief Justice, and may it please the court. This case involves a dog toy that copies Jack Daniels' trademark and trade dress and associates its whiskey with dog poop. What was I thinking? Last week, the Supreme Court heard a case about dog urine, and I totally whiffed on tracking down the scent and digging it up for you, my beloved listeners. So a brand parodying Jack Daniels came out with a toy called Bad Spaniels. Huh? It's shaped like a bottle of Jack Daniels and has similar markings, but, and this is quite crucial, it is not filled with 80-proof bourbon, it is a dog chew toy. Now, if it were filled with bourbon, that too would be a violation because Jack Daniels is a Tennessee product, cannot call itself bourbon. It is a whiskey, but crucially, and once more, it is not a chew toy. Justice Alito tried to hash out this difficult point with lawyer Lisa Blatt. No, no, it you're not selling urine. It's exactly oh, you, this toy. Oh, I'm sorry, I thought it was... No, no it's exactly this toy, which purportedly <laughs> contains some oh. sort of dog excrement oh, I'm or sorry. urine. Okay, my bad. No, my bad. Bad, just host. Bad. When Supreme Court justices make several references to dog poop and excrement, you should know that you could turn to me for coverage. And I failed you. Ensorcelled as I was by a heavenly object that offered no possibility of destroying cities, let alone beloved throw rugs. On the show today, good arguments against banning TikTok. I looked for one. I'll report my findings. But first, a new short film called The Recall, Reframed. It examines the removal of California Judge Aaron Persky after his sentencing in the case of People v. Turner. You'll remember that Stanford student Brock Turner was convicted of the sexual assault and attempted rape of an unconscious woman and sentenced to six months in jail. The film raises important questions about accountability, not just for criminals, but for the judges who sentence them. The problem was these issues weren't really allowed a full airing at the time of the recall. Film director Rebecca Richmond Cohen joins us next.
Stanford undergraduate Brock Turner was convicted of sexual assault after he and his victim, Chanel Miller, had been drinking at a fraternity party to the point of incapacitation. Sentenced by Judge Aaron Persky, whose words of sympathy toward Turner stood in contrast to the words of his victim. Turner served three months of a six-month sentence, and the backlash was swift. Persky became the first California judge in 86 years to be recalled. At the time, this was widely framed as a story of accountability. Now it's being retold as a story of overreaction. Rebecca Richmond Cohen is the director and producer of a new documentary, which has aired on MSNBC and is available now for streaming on Peacock. It is called The Recall Reframed. Rebecca, welcome to The Gist. Thanks for having me, Mike. Could you tell me how you were observing this, how you were taking in this information back in 2016, the crime was committed in 2015, but in 2016, when most of the attention descended upon Persky, Turner, and the case. Yeah. I mean, in 2016, the first thing I heard about the case was Chanel Miller's victim impact statement, which went viral and was, I think, an anthem um, for survivors and for their allies and resonated so profoundly um, about the harms not only of the assault, um, but also its aftermath and all of the institutional failings. Um, So, you know, I think for, you know, the vast majority of people, that's how we came to know the case. Um, And then to see the growing outrage um, about Brock Turner's sentence. Were you at first outraged by the dearth of time that he was sentenced to, or were you more worried about the outrage within the community against the judge and the legal system? So I think um, I think there was a lot of outrage in this case, and I think um, I think it was really important outrage. I just think it was mischanneled. Um, I mean, I think people were outraged um, about um, how widespread sexual violence is um, on college campuses and throughout this country. I think people were outraged rightly about the disparity in sentencing between a white privileged college kid and a low income person of color. So I think I shared that outrage. Um, I think it was right. Um, the issue is where we channel that outrage and what the research shows and what our film shows is that, um, sentences across the state in California increased by 30% in the six weeks following the announcement of the recall. And that that effect wasn't on the Brock Turners of the world, um, because there are systemic injustices in our criminal legal system. Um, those sentences fell disproportionately on low income and people of color, the exact people that the recall supporters claim to serve. So I think it is a moment, it should be, we should look back on this case, um, that there should be a real reckoning here about where we channeled our outrage and who it served and who it didn't serve. Right, because the way to address the disparity in sentencing between the privileged white defendant and the defendant from the marginalized community is not to extra punish or give more punishment or uh, punish those who fail to sufficiently punish the privileged white student, you're saying. 
That's exactly right. We never recall the judges who punish low-income people of color too much. That doesn't happen. The only judges we we recall, the law enforcement we recall, um, like all of those are people who err on the side of leniency. And so what happens in our system is that sentences escalate and escalate and escalate more. And this isn't a left-right problem. I mean, what's so interesting here is that the people who supported the recall and the people who opposed it are largely shared values, right? Actually all care about um, about issues related to mass incarceration, actually all care um, about sexual violence and gender justice. Um, but there's just a real disconnect about where we where we channel those feelings. Right. And that's why that was how you chose to present and argue the case. It strikes me that you could have uh, made or someone who wanted to make an argument pointing out the excesses of the recall could have made three arguments. One is that a six-month sentence was fine and sufficient. I haven't heard too many people making that. One is more of a judicial discretion argument, which is that even if the judge got it wrong, it's important not to have, say, mandatory sentences or an overreaction to a light sentence. There was a little bit of that in there. But the bulk of the film was a mass incarceration argument, a competing virtues argument. To acknowledge that the uh, sexual assault, the concern about sexual assault is perfectly valid, but think about this competing virtue of let us now worry about over-incarceration. And I assume that you took that tack because you believe it, but also because the audience that you were presenting is to, sort of the world that, uh, or the uh, milieu that you were operating in, you knew that that would be the most resonant. That's right. Um, that's exactly right. The film doesn't take a stance on the sentence. And um, and that is because it is complicated. Um, well, the film presents a number of different views on the sentence, including two prosecutors who opposed the recall, um, but also opposed the sentence, thought it was too lenient. Um, but I do think the sentence is complicated and was often misframed by the media, which was, you know, it was widely reported that he had a six-month sentence and served three months of that, which is correct. But it fails to mention two other aspects of his sentence. Sentence. One is three years probation, and the second is um, a lifetime of registry of having to register as a sex offender, um, which I believe is real and genuine punishment. Um, my previous work in 2016, I produced a film called Untouchable that interweaves the stories of three survivors of sexual violence with the stories of three people who'd been convicted of sex crimes, um, and and it is profound what punishment being on the sex offender registry is, and you know a lifetime of collateral consequences. So, you know, the film raises that as something that we need to discuss. But the larger question is, the film ends with a question that it doesn't really answer, which is, what does justice look like for sexual violence? And what the film does is it says, like, look, we have a problem in this country, which is we conflate justice with long prison sentences, um, and that this needs to be the beginning of a conversation of what justice can be um, that, sees, um, that sees justice as something that is broader than just harsh punishment, and that we need to start by asking about the unmet needs of survivors. It is true that many survivors seek retribution and punishment, many in the form of long prison sentences, but not all. Many, many survivors ask for other things. They want a genuine apology. Um, they want some form of community recognition. Um, they want some form of compensation 
compensation for missed wages when they have to go to trial or deal with the aftermath of assault. Um, and that basically in our country, we have a one-stop shop, which is criminal punishment. And that is the only thing we generally offer survivors. And we fail. We fail to offer all the other things that survivors need. Um, and we hope that this film can be a point in the conversation um, to uplift the work of activists in the restorative justice movement, in the transformative justice movement, victims' rights organizations who have been doing this work for many, many years to say we need to offer survivors more than just long prison sentences. For my listeners who haven't seen the film, um, your experts who are mostly making the point, although you represent the countervailing opinion, the dominant opinion at the time, are, tell me if I'm wrong, they're all women and I think four out of five of them are women of color. That seemed to be a uh, conscious choice, right? Um, yes, it, uh, we interview five people in the film. Jeff Rosen is a white man, but the other four who opposed the recall are all women of color. And I'll come to the issue from very, very different places. Um, two are part of the legal establishment. One is a retired judge. One is the deputy district attorney who litigated the case. Um, and then um, Therese Domingo, who's a community organizer, who said, you know, from the time the recall was announced, like, you know, the, one of the big debates was um, the, the recall campaign put forward an argument that said we need to, sorry, the, the no on recall said we need to protect judicial independence, which I think for people in the legal establishment can be persuasive. For people outside the legal establishment, I think it is not. The persuasive argument is what the pro-recall people said, which is this is a case of community values. We need judges to respect our community values. And that, I think, is a powerful argument. Um, Therese Domingo, the, the community organizer in the film, answers, but whose community values, right? Um, like, is it the community values of the side that can raise millions of dollars to recall the judge? Or is it the millions of, or is it the community values of people who care about rehabilitation, of people who look for different ways to promote public safety, who think that long sentences don't equal justice? Whose community values are they? Um, and that is a really hard question, I think, that we need to reckon with. Well, let me tell you, I agree with your film. I agree with uh, everyone you're just quoting. I agree with the conclusions presented. But I agreed with it then. I was very worried about the recall then. Well, as worried as I could be from 3,000 miles away and one judge. I just thought it was bad precedent and it was going about for reasons of anger and emotion. Understandable, but not the best way to conduct a legal system. Back then, I might have said it on my show, but I never heard a hint of that on MSNBC. And I scoured other media. There were editorials here or there. The uh, estimable Emily Bazelon wrote an excellent article in the New York Times, as she always does. Jill Filipovich on CNN wrote such a piece. But you could scarcely find the sentiment of, hold on, check the brakes, what are we doing? Did you look at that? Did you examine that? Did you even try to make this documentary before now, but found that the atmosphere wasn't hospitable? Yeah, um, I think I think that's right. Um, yes, I don't think we could have made this documentary or gotten um, such a such a wide audience for it before 
the response to George Floyd's murder before the racial justice uprisings in the summer of 2020. Um, And when, I mean, I really do believe that activists putting their bodies in the streets um, changed the public narrative about what was possible. It changed the Overton window um, about what was politically possible. And I think for many, many Americans, they came to question our criminal legal system and our system of harsh punishment and to understand the systemic racism behind it in new ways. And I think it was that uprising that opened the door to a more nuanced and a very overdue conversation um, about what the effects of the recall would be. And the recall's old, like it's not this exact scenario will likely never happen again, but there will be other crimes that cause real harm um, that we will have a knee-jerk response to. And I hope that what um, that re- the racial justice reckoning has done and what our film can be part of is asking people to slow down and to look at the effects of where they're channeling their outrage. I want to ask you about, just in our conversation, I think we have, you and I have different theories of social change. You said it's important to keep the outrage, channel the outrage, just channel it in a more positive direction, taking into account, for instance, over-incarceration. Whereas my theory of change would be something like, outrage is not the best frame of mind to make decisions in. And I would advocate that even in the moment, although it might make uh, a person or a network unpopular, you have to temper the outrage, um, maybe acknowledge that an outrageous act took place, but think about the policies that result. So what your documentary does, and I don't criticize it for it, and what you said was, you know, we couldn't have really considered this before George Floyd. And in the documentary, there are all different uh, slogans, defund the police is shown and not in a negative light, that this was one of the uh, asks after George Floyd. And as we were talking, I said to myself, oh, you know, someone now from a very uh, feminist perspective, and this is acknowledging that uh, the film is uh, Feminist Films LLC, so you have a feminist perspective. Someone from a very feminist perspective could say, guess what the consequence of defund the police was? That people who committed sexual assault got off light or got off without accountability. And if we just, my theory is, if we just whipsaw from outrage to outrage and hope to channel it well, it's less likely that we'll get the proper policies than if we, in the moment, task our media with and ask ourselves to be, to use the rational part of our brain, not the outrage part of our brain, to think about what policies we should enact. What do you think? Um, I mean, I don't disagree with that, which is another way of saying I agree with that, which is, but I think we can hold them both, that we can both hold outrage and rationality, that you can have outrage without knee-jerk responses, um, that you can hold all these values in your mind at once. I just think, and I think we're doing a better job of doing that now. And I don't mean to say that it was impossible to to do this um, before 2020. I just think the media wasn't there now. It wasn't yeah, there yet. Yeah. Um, and so we should be there. We should learn our lesson, uh, you know, and we'll make mistakes again, but we should learn our lesson from this one. And that's, you know, that's what I hope that the film is part of that conversation. Right. And I'll give you something constructive. We talked about restorative justice. If we endorse 
systems of restorative justice and put it out there and have ways to pursue restorative justice as part of our institutions, then it becomes easier to point uh, the the rudder that way, right? If there are actual institutions that are trying to pursue restorative justice, when a flashpoint occurs, instead of saying, we need now to do an examination and think about this concept that maybe was abstract beforehand, if we have actual institutions that we installed in a time of rationality, it becomes a lot easier to get justice than just hoping that our outraged reactions at the time are properly channeled. That's absolutely right. I couldn't agree more. It's we we lose rhetorically and we lose in practice if we say, here are your choices, nothing or long prison sentences. We have to present something else. Um, and 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 there are people who have been doing that work in such powerful ways um, for many years that we need to lift up, that we need to strengthen and we need to listen to. Right, right. Maybe if at the time in California, there was a robust system of restorative justice. Maybe Chanel Miller would have endorsed that. Maybe Brock Turner wouldn't have phrased his, uh, or maybe he wouldn't have phrased his statements in court as stupidly as he did. But beyond phrasing, it seems like I'm saying, oh, he would have had a better PR person. Maybe he would have actually thought about it differently. So that's, I guess that's uh, my theory of change. That's the hope I have. I agree with that. Rebecca Richmond Cohen is an Emmy-nominated documentary filmmaker and lecturer on law at Harvard Law School. And her latest documentary airing on Peacock and MSNBC is called The Recall Reframed. Thank you so much. Thank you, Mike. And now the spiel. Last week, the CEO of TikTok, Sho Chu, was before Congress to defend his extremely popular tool used for the dissemination of teenage girls doing snap outfit changes to Olivia Rodrigo and also maybe spying, allegedly. The testimony did not go great, but this CNN report accurately portrays the visit as a very memeable opportunity. But I think the concern is that some of that information, like location data, could be used for intelligence operations for certain folks using the app. Has ByteDance spied on American citizens? I don't think that spying is the right way to describe it. Uh, social media sharing unintentionally with the Chinese Communist Party. That's better, right? Worry over TikTok has become a bipartisan issue, and the few voices who are asking us to slow our roll are in doing so with very much effectiveness. Here was this LA Times editorial, quote, Congress is scapegoating TikTok. It's no worse than other social media platforms. Quote, most social media apps are unacceptably invasive by design, treat users as raw material for personal data surveillance, and fall short on transparency about their data sharing practices. Okay, but that doesn't sound to me like we should exempt the goat from the scape. Call the whole herd. But further down in the piece, the editorial board, the authors, seemed intent to undermine their own argument by noting, quote, Chu tried to make the case that TikTok is a private company independent of the Chinese government and could build a firewall to ensure there is no foreign interference. But his argument was undercut by an announcement Thursday from the Chinese Commerce Ministry that would oppose the forced sale. China considers technology a national security issue and has the right under Chinese law to block the export of it. Yes, that is, in fact, worse than every other app that merely mines your data. Jeff Bezos' ultimate goal 
is not the invasion of Taiwan. Data mined and controlled by rapacious American capitalists is bad because they'll exploit Americans to make more money. Data controlled by Chinese communists, it's, wait, what was the headline? No worse than other platforms? But that's not true. It's not no worse. It's yes worse. Outside of the hearings, New York Representative Jamal Bowman planted his flag as the only pro-TikTok member of Congress. Why the hysteria and the panic and the targeting of TikTok? Uh, See above, Jamal. Everything I've said, what the LA Times just laid out in purportedly agreeing with you. But I interrupted. Go on. As we know, Republicans in particular have been sounding the alarm, creating a red scare around China. They've been doing it in a variety of ways when it comes to economic competition, when it comes to semiconductor manufacturing, and when it comes to technology. Yeah, because Chinese control of all those industries is indeed scary. Joe Biden, not a Republican, signed the CHIPS Act to bolster U.S. semiconductor manufacturing and stave off Chinese dominance. 205 of the 206 Republicans voted against that. 214 of the 216 Democrats voted for it. And you, Rep. Bowman, were not one of the ones who objected. Even though TikTok provided 30 of its biggest stars to campaign along with the representative, none of this seemed like a forceful argument to me. You know, for me, maybe you're like this too, there's a certain kind of debate or an issue in which you might be generally leaning one way but could be persuaded otherwise. But the thing that pushes me over to one side isn't the quality of the argument for the proposal, it's the converse, meaning the utter lack of substance to anyone arguing against it, the dearth of just any good argument to the contrary. I remember, for me, gay marriage was a little like this. Now, it was the 90s gay marriage, at least in my circles, wasn't really in the air as a thing that the gay community was agitating for. So when I first heard it proposed as a more or less serious idea, I didn't really have a strong opinion. I think I defaulted to, yeah, well, why not? Let's uh, make everyone happy and not be terrible. But it was when I really engaged with the arguments, all of the arguments, especially the arguments against, and I saw just how terrible they were, the paucity of logic, the appeal to some vague reference to history or the idea that the future will look really bad based on, I don't know, supposition. I said to myself, there is just no good argument against this. So I became very for it. I think it's a little similar right now. This is how it's acting for me in TikTok. It seems like a bad idea for 150 million Americans to be using Chinese controlled technology. Invasive though Meta is, Zuckerberg doesn't detain the Uyghurs. I have not seen too many good arguments to the contrary. Until today. I came pretty close. The New York Times published Jamil Jaffer, the lawyer and executive director of the Knight First Amendment Institute of Columbia, in an op-ed titled, There's a Problem with Banning TikTok. It's called the First Amendment. Reading the article, I agreed with him. There are a lot of plausible worries over the talk, but worries aren't proof. And if every communication technology could be shut down on the whims of worries, then we would be in a worse place. I took Professor Jaffer's argument, even combined it with Bowman's argument, not as a rebuttal to the idea of a ban, but as a threshold to meet. I would say that the worries do seem real, but until seem gets turned into are demonstrated to be, 
then I further worry about taking drastic action. And the Jamal Bowman part is, once the fears are proved to be legitimate, then we will have advanced past the idea of a red scare into the realm of a red or Chinese demonstrated threat. And at that point, I shall be convinced. TikTok's time will have run out. And that's it for today's show. Corey War is the GIST producer, and Joel Patterson's the GIST senior producer. Michelle Pesca is in charge of philanthropy for Peachfish Productions. The GIST is presented in collaboration with Libsyn's AdvertiseCast. For advertising inquiries, go to advertisecast.com slash the GIST. and thanks for listening. Today, I'm super excited to announce that more than 150 million Americans are on TikTok. That's almost half of the U.S. coming to TikTok to connect, to create, to share, to learn, or just to have some fun. 